So let me just run through uh, the, the points where we've been. Um, first thing we said is that Jesus' mission drives his every action. Um, so under this point, what do you remember under this point here? Jesus' mission drives his every action. What is the mission um, of Jesus? What, what mission is he on? Do you remember? So a number of things you could say uh, under this point here. Seeking worshipers. Excellent. Good. So the Father is on missions. He's seeking worshipers. The Father is passionate about his worship. And so the Son has been sent to seek and to create worshipers for the Father. And that will be done as he provides living water to sinners uh, with the new birth and, and everything that entails. So excellent. So he's on mission for the Father's worship. Um, what else do we say about the mission um, of the Son? Especially thinking of those first few verses, verses 1 through 6. Remember the phrase that says, and he had to pass through Samaria. It was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. Um, the idea there is he's also on mission. Um, he has a divine appointment given to him by the Father. Um, there's a woman there, um, the, the woman of Samaria, and it's not random. Um, the Father has ordained the Son to seek her out. She's a chosen sheep of the Father. So the Son's on mission. Um, his mission also aims at providing living water to thirsty sinners. And that's really where this, this story um, starts to, to, to zoom in and focus, this conversation Jesus has with the woman um, at the well. Um, she comes thirsty, thirsty physically, but really thirsty spiritually. Um, do you remember what we said about thirst? What, what is the idea there, thirsty? Um, spiritual thirst, what is that? Remember might be clarified by thinking about what, what is living water. What was that? What the living water is that Jesus offered? What does that mean? We said it's really synonymous with what? Synonymous with cleansing. with cleansing from sin and the gift of the Spirit. It really is synonymous with the new birth. What he talked to Nicodemus about in chapter 3. There's sort of a couple sides to that. It was the, the, the life-giving spirit that transforms one's nature and the total cleansing from sin. I think Jesus is saying the same thing here in chapter 4 to this woman. Um, so what does it mean to be thirsty? I think it means to be without that. It means to be spiritually parched, spiritually dead, without spiritual life, no fruit in one's life, dead towards God. She's thirsty. Um, it also uh, represents just the um, no satisfaction in her life. She's gone from husband to husband to husband. Um, and, and nothing has satisfied. She's dead towards God and without any true satisfaction in, in life. And Jesus comes to offer her living water, true spiritual life um, in her life. Then it moves on to the, the, this conversation about worship. And this is where we springboarded into a um, five-part mini-series talking about worship. Jesus' mission entirely transforms worship. He, he gives salvation. He gives living water, the new birth to people. Not as an incident itself, but unto worship, so that they would be made into worshipers of the Father. And we said um, the new covenant worship no longer centers around a place. It's no longer in Jerusalem or in Samaria, but it's what? It's in spirit, with a life transformed by the spirit and in truth, centered around the truth of God revealed in Christ. Um, then we saw last week 
on this point here, Jesus' mission demands eager gospel proclamation from himself and his followers. And really the question was, how will this mission of Christ go forward? Um, God is passionate about worship. Christ is passionate about worship. Um, but how will the Father receive this global worship which he desires? And the answer was through proclamation, was through testimony. And really the disciples we saw last week are rebuked. All they are concerned about is getting bread. All they're concerned about is filling their stomachs. They have this mission to go to Samaria and all they bring back is bread. And they're rebuked by the woman who leaves her water jar behind. She's so passionate about Christ, so filled and satisfied now with them. She goes and brings back men. She proclaims the Messiah is here. She brings people back. And then the disciples are rebuked by Christ who forgoes his meal He's very hungry, and he says, there's something else more essential to me. Um, there's something that I need more than bread, and that's to do the will of my Father. And there's something that satisfies me more than bread, and that's to do the will of my Father. Well, what is that? It is the ingathering of the harvest of these souls, of the Samaritans, um, to give them eternal life and make them worshipers. And that's really where we pick up today. Um, and this is really the last section. We're in, um, in verses 39 to 42. And we're left with one more question, and that is how are the nations to respond to Christ? Um, how will they be gathered in in this harvest? What is the proper response that Christ demands from the world? And this story really ends the same way the, the Nicodemus story ends. It climaxes with a conversation about faith belief. Um, in the Gospel of John, in these first four chapters, every single story mentions believing in some way. It's very significant. Obviously, John's message is what? These things are written so that you would believe. And so in the Gospel of John, he's been going after, really, um, he's written this Gospel to do a few things, and a lot of it centers around faith. He's done it in order to demonstrate the credibility of the Gospel and provide a solid foundation for faith. It says, these things are written so that you would believe, to give you a foundation upon which to build your faith. There's a credible reason for belief. In the Gospel of John, he's also written to fill out the content of faith. Through this Gospel, he's going to explain not just you have to believe something about Jesus. There's specific content, and we're going to see that this morning. There's a body that needs to be known, a body of knowledge. And then finally, he's going to teach about the, the nature of faith. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 14, the nature of faith is it looks away from itself. It relies on it, trusts, it depends upon, upon Christ. And I think there actually might be one more. Um, to distinguish true faith from false faith. Um, and we're going to see a lot of these this morning. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 23, many people are believing in Jesus. But it says Jesus, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. He didn't believe them. He didn't give himself in response to their faith. There is something significantly wrong with faith. And so throughout the Gospel of John, you also see this contrast between not all faith is real faith. Some faith is false faith. Well, what is the difference between these? And, and that's really what John is, is writing to, to teach us. Um, but so much of it centers around believing. And that's where we are this morning um, in point five. Jesus' mission is to, responded to, to be responded to by genuine faith. By genuine faith. Um, not only is it significant that John mentions believing, this pistuo word in Greek, um, to believe or faith, in every single story in chapters 1 to 4, but it's also really important to notice that 
every time in these four chapters that someone is said to truly believe, there's a few instances where people truly believe, their faith progresses from an initial faith to a mature faith. From a, from a beginning faith to a faith that deepens and clarifies and, and bears fruit. So let me show you a few examples of these. Go back to chapter 1, verse 50. This is very um, important and intentional uh, by John. Um, he's teaching us something about the nature of true faith. And we're going to see that this morning, but I want to show you that it's also other places in these four chapters. <clears throat> Remember, this is the first disciples of, of Christ here in chapter 1. And we come to verse 50, um, back up to verse 49. Nathanael declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So here is Nathanael believing, and Jesus affirms his faith. But Jesus also affirms that it's small, and there's much room for it to, to grow. He, he, he got it right, but he doesn't quite understand Messiah yet and what Messiah has come to do. Well, look now at how this faith of theirs progresses. Look down to chapter 2, verse 11. Right after this wedding um, in Cana where Jesus changes water into wine and all that symbolized, look what it says in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana, at Galilee and manifested his glory and look what it says and his disciples which ones the ones from chapter 1 verse 50 and his disciples believed in him that's very significant so they believed and now they believe it's growing it's deepening the next instance where this happens is in our passage this morning we're going to unpack that and then it happens one more time in verse uh, verses 46 through 54 we'll look at this next week Look at verse 50, chapter 4, verse 50. This Roman official comes to Jesus. He wants him to heal his son. Jesus says to him in verse 50, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And then look down in verse 53. The father knew that that was the hour that Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he Believed. There it is again, a second time. The idea in a, in a more significant, profound way than he had initially done in all his household. Um, so that, that is what has been going on here in John. And what we're seeing this morning is um, something very, very similar. In each of these stories, people responded to Jesus with an initial faith, which is not yet fully mature, but which progresses into a deeper, more accurate faith in his person. The point is that true faith grows. True faith grows. If faith is real, then the more of Christ that it comes to know, the more it will grow. And the opposite of this was seen in Nicodemus. Remember, he comes and he confesses Christ. He believes. He, he says, we know you're a teacher come from God. And then as Jesus begins to speak to him, and shine light on him. What does Nicodemus do? He retreats into the darkness, right? Why? His initial faith was exposed as being a false faith. Because the more of revelation, more of Christ that he spoke into his life, with the conviction of sin and exposing his desperate need, Nicodemus said, no, no, I don't want that. And he, he backs off. But true faith um, will grow the more um, it is exposed to the light of, of Christ. 
So let's begin. Uh, back up in verses 28 to 30, the woman runs back to the town, tells everybody about the arrival of this Jewish traveler. She says, can, can, can this be the Messiah? And she invites everybody out to, to find out for themselves. Um, and then verses 31 to 38, the focus is on Jesus' conversation with his disciples. And then now, in these verses, verses 39 to 40, the focus goes back on the approaching Samaritans. Okay, so the zooms back in on them. They're, they're coming towards Jesus. These verses now tell us about the initial faith of the Samaritans. Verses 39 to 40. So let's read it. 39 to 40. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. This is the initial faith of the Samaritans. And the first thing we can say about their faith is that it was based on the woman's testimony. It says many of the Samaritans believed in him. Now this phrase, believe in him, is a, a favorite of John's. So John 3.16, God's love of the world is that whoever believes in him. Um, John uses it all over the place. Believe in him. And the idea behind this phrase is, is not to say that whenever you see believe in him, that means it's, it's genuine faith. We, we know that's not because chapter 2, verse 23, the, the crowds says they were believing in his name. They believed in him, but Jesus didn't buy it. There, there was something wrong. So what do we mean then by, by believe in him? The idea of believe in him is simply it's belief that's directed towards Christ. It's belief that's dependent on Christ. For it to be true, real faith, saving faith, it has to have the correct content as well. So it not only is directed towards him, it also has to have the correct content and the correct posture and the correct motivation. Um, but from what we see here at the passage, we don't know anything more. The Samaritans don't know anything more. All they know is what the woman has told them about Jesus, and they respond with faith in him. So what does that mean here? The woman has just testified that Jesus has told her all things that she has ever done. And notice what it says. The people respond not by believing the woman. You would expect it to say, and they believed her, right? That's not what it says. It says, and they believed in him. So these people are responding to her testimony about Christ. They obviously believe what she's saying, but they now are placing a kind of faith directed towards this person. They have yet to meet in him. And I think what's going on here is we just read last week about these Old Testament sowers. The Old Testament prophets have, have plowed the soil. Even in Samaria, they have the first five books of Moses. Deuteronomy, which promised Messiah that would come, the, the prophet. Um, and even John the Baptist, most think, was baptizing and doing a ministry in this very region. Um, Ainan near Salim, we read back in chapter 3, was, was not far away. In other words, these people have been prepared already by the word of God, by scripture. They've been sown. And now the testimony of the woman comes. The Messiah is here. And they respond with an initial faith in him. That he is the Messiah. We don't know much about him. But from what you say, it sounds like he is the Messiah. We believe that. And now at this point, their, their, their faith really isn't, isn't complete. And it's not even saving faith at this point. Um, they still need to hear his teaching about living water. They still need to hear his teaching about worship. They still need to hear about his identity as the son um, who's been sent from the father, um, who's, who comes with authoritative word, who's the lamb of God. 
They still need to know what kind of Messiah he is. He's come to be the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. He's come to put away sin. He's come to inaugurate the kingdom. He's come to be lifted up. And they still need to turn to him in repentance and faith and submission as a disciple. So they don't have anything like that yet. But they have an initial faith. And they, they come to him nevertheless. But although their faith is just in seed form, nevertheless, it is genuine. And this is evidenced by verse 40. Look at verse 40 now. It says, therefore, therefore. That's very important. Therefore. Their initial faith leads them to pursue a better knowledge of Jesus. The following actions of the Samaritans flow from knowledge of of Jesus from, from their faith. Okay, so look at verse 39 again. It says they believed in him, and so what did they do? Therefore they came to him. Therefore they came to him and were urging him. In other words, true faith, even seed form faith, always presses to a clearer, deeper, truer knowledge of Jesus. That's what faith always does. Here it's seed form, but because it was true, what did it do? It drove them to want to know, know him more. Um, this word here, they were asking, it's the same word that was used by the disciples up at verse 31. They were urging him to eat bread. It, it means like insistency and doing it over and over again. Rabbi, eat bread, eat bread. Is what it is here. They were urging him to stay. Stay with us, stay with us, stay with us. That's the idea. It's amazing that they invited him to stay with them. They wouldn't have done that for a Jew normally. Um, they already believe something significant about him, but this highlights their faith. Um, because they believed the woman's testimony, they desired to know him even more. So, so what, are we, what are we getting at here? Um, go back to chapter one with me. This is very similar to how the disciples responded to John the Baptist, if you remember that. John the Baptist proclaims the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And look how the disciples respond in verse 37. They hear what John testifies, they believe it, and it drives them to learn more from Jesus. The two disciples, verse 37, heard John say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he is staying, and they remained with him that day. The idea here is that if Jesus really is who John proclaimed him to be, then if one really believed in him, he would not be satisfied with just a quick passing glance, but would be driven to know him and to remain with him. In other words, true faith, even seed form, will drive you. That's one of the evidences that it's real. You want to know him more. If he really is who he is, if he really is Messiah, then I cannot be content with just a a vague knowledge of him. Calvin commented on these verses in saying how many people are satisfied with a bare passing look of Jesus and only sniff at the gospel. Um, that's not what true faith does. Even baby faith drives one to know Christ more. And that is what is happening in our passage here. They believe in him, he's Messiah, but we can't remain there. We have to know him and hear it for ourselves. Um, so go back to verse 40 of chapter 4. 
they pleaded with him, begged him, stay with us, and he stayed there for two days. Um, the question is, what was he doing for two days in Samaria? Um, I think it's obvious. He was, he was teaching them. That's what he did for two days. And we, we, we get that from the next verses. This brings us to the, the next point here, the maturing faith of the Samaritans. Verses 41 to 42. Let me read it. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So these verses here now highlight the maturing faith of the Samaritans. And the um, first thing I want to point out is that we get two distinct groups. Right? Look at this. The first is in verse 41. It says, and many more, that is, in addition to those who had gone out to Jesus in verse 39 and 40, many more people who did not respond originally to the woman believed because of his word. And then verse 42, we go back to that original group. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. So there's two groups going on here. There's those who remained in the town, who did not go out to Jesus, and there are those who did go out to Jesus. But what is highlighted is for, that for both of these groups here is the foundation of their faith. Something similar is said about both of these groups. Look what it says in verse 41 again. It says, many more believed, what? Literally, on account of his word. Verse 42, the other group. No longer do we believe on account of your word, for we have heard for ourselves. So Jesus returns to Sychar, stays for two days, and at the end of the two days, both groups, those who had gone out originally and those who had not, many from both groups heard Jesus for themselves, and they respond with genuine saving faith in him. So let's unpack this a little bit. Look at verses 41 through the beginning of verse 42. Um, we're told that their faith centered on the very word. Christ, centered on the very word of Christ. The eyewitness testimony of the woman was important, but it was only in order to bring people to Jesus that they might hear him firsthand. And even today, so many people say they believe in Jesus for many reasons other than that they have heard from him themselves, that they have dealt with, that they have come to terms with, that they have reckoned with his teaching. You have to do that, John is saying. They've placed their faith in him based on his word. John is telling us that the only kind of faith that saves is faith that is directed towards Christ on account of his word. So there's nothing wrong with the faith on account of the testimony of the woman, but it cannot stop there. It has to reckon with the words of Christ. And that's what happens here. We're not allowed to believe in Jesus about anything we wish. We, we don't make our own Jesus. Jesus is who he is based upon what he declares about himself. Saving faith reckons with Christ as he declares himself to be true. What he declares himself to be. Next, in verse 42, we're also told that their faith, sent, that their faith uh, corroborated the testimony of the woman. Look again at verse 42. They were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. 
again, here, here it is. It says they were saying. It's the idea that they were saying over and over again. It was highlighting their insistence. They, 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 they were saying, um, uh, um, verse, verse 42, it's no longer because of what you said. It's no longer because of, of what you said. Um, and notice the contrast between these two kinds of faith from their own lips, right? There was the original faith, no longer because of what you said, right? We believe then, but now we believe in, an, in another way, in a more significant, more profound way, in a more direct way, because we have heard from him ourselves. Their initial faith was good, but it was insufficient. They didn't know who this Messiah was, what he had come to accomplish, and how one should relate to him. But now they do. And here's the point. This is all we're saying. The genuineness of their original initial faith is proven as now they are confronted with the words of Christ and respond again in faith. And they're, they're not running from the light like Nicodemus did. That's what um, Craig Keener said. Like Nathaniel, the Samaritan's initial level of faith is based on another's testimony, which is acceptable for initial faith. Once they come and see, however, they progress to a first-hand faith, which characterizes true disciples. Thus, the Samaritans do not denigrate the woman's testimony in chapter 4, 42. Rather, they confirm it. Put it another way, the Samaritans who have come to faith do so because they are sheep which have been given and chosen by the Father and given to the Son. Go over to chapter 10 with me. Um, I think this is what is going on in our passage here. The Son comes and speaks, and the sheep hear and respond. Who are the sheep? They are those chosen by the Father, the elect, those whom God has chosen and given to his Son to save. Chapter 10, verse 2. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, to him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before him, and the sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. In other words, Christ here in this passage is coming and is speaking, and his sheep are hearing. What I want to point out is that in our passage, Jesus does no sign. That's very significant. He did signs in Judea, and they respond with unbelief. All they care about is the signs. He does no sign here. All he does is teaches them. All he does is speaks to them. They hear his voice, and they believe. It's very significant. The point is that any and all true faith must grow from having heard and reckoned with the teaching of Christ. And the point is also that true faith comes to life through the means of hearing Christ's word. This is the power of the word of Christ. Where does faith come from? Romans 10, 17. What does it say? Faith comes by hearing. hearing. And hearing what? Through the word of Christ. That's what's going on here. Christ is speaking and his sheep hear. And they respond, this is the power of Christ's word. Christ's word in the scriptures for us, how do you hear Christ's word today? You hear it in the scriptures. They're inseparable. You want to hear the word of Christ? You want to hear him speaking? You go to the word of God. That's where it's contained for believers. And it is just as powerful. 
It creates the faith that it commands. Jesus comes to them, does no sign, only teaches them, and it creates faith. They respond in faith. This leads to the, the final point here. Their faith confessed the identity of Jesus with certainty. Verse 42, look what it says. It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They say we've heard his teaching and now we know, we know certain. In other words, true faith is not a leap into the dark. What we were saying in the previous point, faith doesn't need a sign. It needs the word of Christ. And when it hears it, it creates faith. It, it responds to it. That's not a leap in the dark. That's not irrational. That's not contentless. That's not a maybe thing. It is an absolute certainty. That's what's going on here. We know for certain. All we have is his word. And we know for certain that this is the Christ. True faith is not a leap in the dark. It's not an I hope so. The very word of Christ is the foundation on which we rest. And it's not a faulty foundation. It's not a, oh, maybe uh, it's right, maybe it's not. It's not uncertain. True faith hears the words of Christ. It responds with absolute certainty that it is nothing other than the very words of God. It doesn't need anything else. That's enough. Um, look over with me to 1 Thessalonians. Have Hold your hand here. Something very similar happens there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. In verse 13, Paul is talking about his ministry to the Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 13. He's recalling when he preached the gospel to them originally. He said, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of man, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What does it mean to be a believer? It not only hears the word of God, it not only receives the word of God, it receives it as the very word of God. That's what a believer is. When you heard the word of God, you received it not as the word of a man, but as it really is the word of God, which powerfully works in you, believers. In other words, not only is faith birthed from hearing the word of Christ, but Christ's word in scripture proves itself to be the very word of God. This is what theologians call the self-authenticating nature of the scriptures. They're self-authenticating. It means they don't need anything beyond themselves to prove themselves. They, 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 they are sufficient in themselves to prove themselves for what they really are. That is exactly what's going on, on in our passage here in John 4. All they have is this teaching, and they respond with absolute certainty. The scriptures, by their very nature and content, reveal and prove themselves to be the word of God. Go over to John chapter 7. Um, love this little verse, and it's, it's quite profound, actually. John chapter 7, verse 46. Pharisees sent officers to apprehend Jesus and bring him back, and they, they don't. They come back to the Pharisees empty-handed. Pharisees say, why didn't you bring him? In verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke 
like this man. That's profound. No one ever spoke like this man. We're going to unpack that a little bit under the, the implications. The point is not that there's not a place for reasoning uh, and, 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 and logic um, and evangelism and, and helping people think through things. There absolutely is, and actually that's what we're doing. We, we are bringing to bear the reasonability of Scripture. We're bringing to bear the emptiness of their worldview. We're bringing to bear the, the absolute clarity and ability of the Word of God to interpret and apply to um, everything that's around us in a way that nothing else is able to. It is self-authenticating. Jesus does no sign. He only speaks. And as evangelists, our job is simply to make the word clear. Yes, you reason. Yes, you help apply. Yes, you help think. But ultimately, the scriptures stand on their own. You do not need to prove the scriptures to use the scriptures. They're self-authenticating in their own content. And here the people respond with a certain faith. So what is faith? It's pretty interesting how John um, gives us such a, a perfect uh, example here. There's three things. Really quickly, just bullet them. Faith consists in a specific body of teaching and knowledge. They say we have heard. So what is faith? You have to have content. You have to have specifics. It's not just anything. Man, our culture is full of just faith as an empty word. I believe. What is that? It's just some mystical feeling. No, there's a body of knowledge that must be known. Second, faith consists in a certainty in that knowledge. Um, we know. So we've heard and we know. Faith, genuine faith, believes that that knowledge is actually true. And finally, faith is complete as it rests, as it believes in and receives that as one's own. Think back at John chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him, the idea is whoever looks at him, turns away from themselves in complete dependence on him alone, will have eternal life. And that's what we see in this passage. Look how it ends. And we know he is indeed the Savior of the world. Not just of the Jews, but of the world, of Samaritans, of us. He's our Savior. That's what they're saying here. Samaritans confess here Jesus is Messiah, not just for the Jews, but their Messiah. You can go back. We had time to Isaiah 45, 21 to 25. Um, very significant passage there. So after hearing Jesus' teaching, the Samaritans confess the identity of Jesus as none other than the Savior of the world. The one who will bring eternal life, not just to the Jews, but to a rebellious world. It means he's come first, not to bring wrath on the nations, as the Jews expected, but to bring salvation. How? By being a perfect substitutionary sacrifice, a lamb of God to bear your wrath, take it away. And to cleanse your heart, make you a new covenant people filled with the Spirit and able to worship God. That's what it means for him to be the Savior. And he'll do that from every corner of the globe. And because they're certain of it, they cast themselves in total dependency um, on his person as well. So I want to show you a few implications before we go there. Um, we've got five minutes before we're done. Any, any questions or comments on this, uh, on this passage? Anything going on here that you want to point out or ask about?
maybe you'll think of some things after we go through these. Um, look at the implications. Number one, just sort of summary where we've been. Genuine faith drives one to know more about Jesus and his word. And it continues to mature the more of him it comes to know. Um, so the evidence of being in Christ is that you persevere in his word. Faith in his word, submission to his word, obedience to his word. And as the word of Christ is exposed in your life, his truth, his commandments, his, his exposure of sin, his promises... And people turn away from that? That's evidence the initial faith was not real to begin with. Genuine faith perseveres in Christ's word. It desires to know his word. It, it, it presses into him. I have to know him if he really is this. Everything must be pushed aside to know him. Number two, saving faith embraces Jesus for who he is and what he accomplished as recorded in the scriptures. It rests there and receives it as one own, one's own, and then it grows deeper in knowledge of him and obedience to him. In other words, it reckons with his word. It, it's not just, I believe in Jesus because mom and dad believe in Jesus. That might be a good starting place. It can't stop there. It must reckon with him directly in his word. Number three, our evangelism must not neglect personal testimony, but it must not end there. There's a good place for personal testimony. It happens in this passage. But our end goal is to bring people face-to-face -face with Christ's teaching for themselves. Apart from that, um, that there can be no saving faith. Finally, in our evangelism, we must rest in the power of Christ's word to produce faith. What does that not mean? That does not mean we do not reason. It does not mean we do not seek to show the reasonability of the scriptures. They are very reasonable. More so than any man-made philosophy. Actually, the, the irony, um, man thinks that Christianity is sort of laughed on. Like, you silly Christians believe the Bible. We, we begin from ourselves and construct our own worldview. They're actually the ones that um, have an unreasonable, irrational system. Um, we have something very certain in the scriptures. It's very rational, um, more so than anything they have. We should seek to demonstrate that. This does not mean that we don't seek to labor to make the scriptures clear and accurately understood. We don't just throw a Bible to someone. We explain it. We unpack it. We, 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 we present it. We make it clear. We teach. We must be patient. But this simply means that ultimately Christ's words, as they are contained in the scriptures, are the decisive factor in any and all saving faith. He speaks and his sheep hear and respond. His words prove themselves to be the very words of God. And by their power, through the Spirit, his words create faith. How? I have two points here. The first is the self-authenticating nature. They do this by their character of purity. God-centeredness, authority, accuracy, consistency, and the ability to explain and align with what exists around us in a way nothing else is able. No one ever spoke like this man. They're self-authenticating. And they're also powerful through the Spirit. The words of Christ do this as they expose and convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment by the Holy Spirit. As we speak, the Spirit is working, pressing, convicting, exposing, creating faith, or exposing unbelief. One more thing at the very end here. You can see unbelief in Christ's word is not the evidence his word is not true. It's not the evidence that his word's not powerful. Actually, it's evidence that his word is just that. Remember? John 3.19, the light shines and what happens? 
That doesn't mean it's not true. People retreat. Why? Because there's not enough evidence there? No. Because they love the darkness, is what John tells us. The fundamental reason for unbelief is mankind's commitment to darkness, to their sin, to depravity, to rebellion. So the word of Christ is powerful, guys. Be encouraged in that. Draw near to it in your lives. Soak in it, saturate in it, swim in it, and then proclaim it boldly um, to those around you. It is very certain, um, and it is the final decisive factor in all faith. So rest there. Anything uh, you would like to mention before we're done? Questions, comments? Love this story. It's, it's, it's just amazing how all these uh, themes of, of John that he's been trying to explain to us are really packed into the story. Um, saving faith, the nature of faith, the growth of faith, Christ's mission, Father's worship, new birth, evangelism, testimony. It's all packed in the stories. It's amazing. Great. All right, guys, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, the certainty that um, there is in it. And thank you for your work of grace to give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the hearts to believe. Father, I thank you for creating faith, that we, we long to know Christ. We long to press into his word and submit our lives by faith in what he has spoken. Help us, Lord, be faithful witnesses to those around us. We've been sent into the harvest. It's begun. And the way we do that is by proclaiming your word and demanding that all repent and believe. We love you, Father. Prepare our hearts for the, the service to come. You would be glorified. We love you. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.